Shall we ask Simon in the future to give us a little bit of history of dyslexia? Yes, Simon in the future, roll. Hello and welcome to Atypical the Podcast, a podcast where we look at life from a more atypical perspective. My name's Simon Heather, your host. And well, I've been promising this for a while, so I apologise, but I have got it out just before the end of Disability History Month, so I'm calling that a win. We we spent a bit of time a few weeks ago talking about dyslexia as part of Dyslexia Awareness Week. And Joey and I were covering this, and I did kind of promise a little bit of history. I got distracted, I went on holiday, things happened. But as we, like I say, are coming to the end of Disability History Month, I decided I finally had to knuckle down. I tied my ADHD up into a corner, pointed my autistic brain at the sort of months of books and notes I've been making on this subject. And, well, basically, here we are. So I would like to do a couple more of these sort of deep dives into concepts and ideas because I found it really interesting. If you listened to my Hans Asperger or indeed my MMR episodes, you'll know that we often draw upon several different sources. And wherever possible, I will make sure that I mention those as we talk about them. But I will also always put those into the show notes. And anything I put in there, please, please, please go and read them because these people are far more intelligent and well-written and well-researched than me. I am but an insect on the sea of their knowledge. So I really would recommend if you find anything I say today interesting, go and read these extra primary sources because they have a lot more to say on this. Anyway, waffled enough, I think it's time to tie up my brain and get on with this dyslexic nightmare of my notes because at the moment I'm even struggling to read my own handwriting. So, moving very swiftly on. So, a bit of history on dyslexia. First of all, where does the word come from? The first recorded use of the term word blindness Wurtblindheit, probably mashed the German pronunciation there, which predates dyslexia and is still used by some, came to be used to describe reading difficulties. And the first person who we can trace this back to was the German doctor Adolf Kussmull, who in 1877 was reporting on what he called disturbances of speech. Now, thanks to both Google Translate and a fantastic article on the Wellcome Trust, it seems that what he was actually describing was the loss of ability to read and write in people who had what we'd probably call today acquired dyslexia as a result of a brain injury or a disease. Then in 1883, his fellow countryman, Rudolf Berlin, which just, by the way, awesome name for German, uh, who was an ophthalmologist in Stuttgart, coined the term dyslexia. And because I've said Stuttgart, I do have to make the reference to shooting you from Stuttgart to create the proper effect. Moving back to the main episode, Berlin published what seems to be the first book on the subject in 1887. And in the following years, the research of these two German pioneers was continued by several mostly British doctors, including James Kerr, James Hinshelwood and William Pringle Morgan. Now, Hinshelwood may be quite well known to quite a few of you. Certainly, I'd heard of him before because I'd read his 1917 book, Congenital Word Blindness. 
It's cited by a whole bunch of other people in the books and articles I read preparing for this, so I was quite pleased about that. And he's often thought of as being the father of dyslexia. Now, his books are not the easiest of reads, especially when you have certain modern sensibilities, and I did struggle a bit with it just from the way in which he writes. But he does seem to be one of the first people to come to the conclusion that dyslexia is an issue in processing and not something that inherently makes someone stupid. Indeed, he is often quoted in saying, It is a matter of the highest importance to recognise the cause and the true nature of this difficulty in learning to read, which is experienced by these children. Otherwise, they may be harshly treated as imbeciles. But anyway, the concept of dyslexia, if not the name itself, probably goes back quite a bit further. I found a fantastic book called Dyslexia, A History by Philip Kirby and Margaret Snowling. As often as not, I'll just either just say Kirby or Kirby and Snowling when I'm quoting them in the rest of this um, episode. And they discuss dyslexia in a historical context and many of the changes over time all the way up to the modern day. I've not actually finished reading it yet. I really would like to, but I got caught up with other things. Um, but it's, it's a really, really good book and it's been a fantastic primary source for me um, alongside you know my own lived experience and talking to people and the frankly dozens of papers and books I've read. Anyway, as we said in our awareness episode, dyslexia as a difference in brain development and thinking has been around a lot longer than let's say modern science has accepted it. But it was only really when reading and writing become widespread that problems in learning to read will get noticed. Something we can see even today in parts of the globe that are now still adopting different teaching practices and what we might see as being modern literacy. And when literacy becomes important in a society, dyslexia starts to become a bit of a big deal. Dyslexia, rather like autism, is kind of curious in this way. It, it, it blurs the lines between your nature and culture, between your body and the environment, between the medical world and the social world. And it shows up differently in different languages and different cultures and contexts. And we might not even realise it exists, as we know it, without literacy. Now, because of the way records and indeed language surrounding cognitive difficulties long ago has changed, it's tricky, if not basically impossible, to identify dyslexic people before, let's say, the 1800s. We can look at accounts of reading troubles or particular ways of creating or doing things to draw our own inferences and try to understand dyslexic history. So in their book, Kirby and Snowling relate a account of a story from the 1500s. Saint Teresa of Avila, a Spanish nun, who lost the ability to recognise words and letters during mystical states. They talk about a German linguist, Johann Schmidt, who in 1679 wrote the first European account of someone able to read for non-visual reasons. Probably a stroke, not so much an underlying issue such as, you know, dyslexia, but it's interesting. And this alone is a huge step forward in what others will later report that dyslexia is understood to be, more of a processing condition than simply something physical with the eyes. They go on to relate a story from 1834, a Professor Laudat in France described recovering from a speech disorder years before that had effectively made printed symbols nonsense. The causes of such acquired reading problems are really very different from dyslexia. They're, they are what we would now probably call acquired dyslexia. But together they show us how we've moved from in the Renaissance into the Industrial Revolution and as science and medicine changed hugely, bodies became to be seen, for better or worse, more like machinery, more something to be judged by their ability to perform an expected function. 
than as a, per a person or a soul. Other big societal shifts matter too. Up until the 1800s, reading was pretty much for the rich and the church only. When I was doing my archaeology degree, a lot of our sources, even well into the medieval period, are functionally church people or the, the court. You know, we can go back as far as some of the older written records in the UK are the pipe rolls, which are effectively tax records in the 12th century. I digress. So most regular working people probably weren't really doing much reading and writing. And then in sort of the 1800s, this started to change. Basic schooling is spreading across Europe and more professional classes are emerging. Industry, after all, demanded its clerks and money men. Letter writing and communication takes off as a way to keep growing communities connected and because of the simple demands of capitalism. For millions of new workers, reading became crucial and set spelling systems started to be brought in, replacing these much more loose ones that owe probably quite a lot to Shakespeare and other writers around that time. Various authors do report that British literacy rose from around a third of males in the 1600s to two thirds by the mid 1800s and half of all women. As Kirby and Snowling wrote, for example, by the end of the century, with widespread schooling, illiteracy was rapidly reducing across all classes. It's interesting to me as well to compare this with changes that happened in places like Cuba following the revolution there, where university students and teachers and academics were sent out into the countryside to teach a mostly illiterate working class how to read in order to rapidly catch up with a whole bunch of industrial and scientific changes. So as I say, these structural shifts started to highlight struggles for those with reading difficulties as we enter into a period of industry and literacy for the majority. I was put onto a really good book by a learning disability historian, David Pritchard, called Education and the Handicapped. 1760 to 1960, which is sat on the desk next to me right now, filled with pencil notes in the margins and most of a pad of post-it notes throughout it. So please do forgive me for that. Anyway, he says that when few can read and write, those who can't end up standing out, which kind of makes sense, right? They could work fine with equally illiterate people, but when you have a majority literate group and an illiterate group, or at least those who might struggle with literacy, things start to show up. Certainly that was my experience. And so I guess once education becomes common, this sort of backwardness appears. Uh, certainly more university research, which started in sort of Germany and, and was spreading, focused on what we now call learning difficulties. And a sociologist, Dr. Tom Campbell of Leeds University and author of the 2013 book Dyslexia, the Government of Reading, which is also in front of me, argues that this created a new group, people with dyslexia. Now, specifically, Campbell ties dyslexia's clinical criteria to government aims to build a population that was better suited to serve the needs of capitalism and finance. I also apologise to Dr Campbell for drawing all over his book and taking huge liberties in summaries of his work. Again, please go read his book. It's in the show notes. Um, and I have to say, I really quite like what I've read of him. He, he, Campbell gives a really interesting discussion on dyslexia's emergence 
and I'm going to try building on it here in his arguments that spotlighting dyslexia did partly serve economic goals, with wealthier boys brought to doctors by parents worried that they wouldn't succeed in school or work. I mean, to put it another way, and going back to Kirby's point on machinery, these Victorian doctors start identifying dyslexia, and they're effectively exercising state control over our bodies for a capitalistic purpose. But as my friend and early co-host of this show, Matt, likes to point out to me, there are limits to a purely economic view on anything. Although he normally says that when I'm off on a rant. According to the sources, it would seem that while kids came to doctors when school difficulties arose, Campbell does make clear to point out there is little evidence that the doctors explicitly aimed for economic outcomes. So the economy obviously shapes the context more than it drives change in society. My late grandfather, who had dyslexia and worked on both sides of the Atlantic, pointed out to me that well into the 20th century, governments in Britain and the US resisted recognising and supporting dyslexics, which is presumably the opposite of what they'd do if they were focused on dyslexic children as future workers and taxpayers. I can hear Kuro telling me off already. But Victorian researchers knew that they likely underestimated the numbers with such difficulties. This is a chicken we are starting to see come back to lay eggs now because we are significantly under-diagnosing people with ADHD and autism. So this dyslexic thing kind of prefigures a lot of where we're going to now in the wider neurodivergent paradigm. Anyway, it, it, it's, it comes down to how dyslexics were overlooked by government and how they and their supporters sought attention. That is the real story for me. Not dyslexia as a product of a centralised authority and keeping people in the centre. To me, it's therefore really interesting to see how these doctors were reporting on this and and you know, how they first started recognising dyslexia, that, because they were working in a society that demanded literacy. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, we end up seeing people who struggle with a particular aspect of society as deficient. And yet, in a lot of the reading I've done, all these accounts seem to suggest that the majority were actually caring for their patients as individuals, as we would like to hope. And unlike later medical models of disability, they didn't blame children for their struggles, but grasped that reading troubles have a biological and social cause, including poor teaching. There's a reason why I quoted James Hinshelwood earlier. So Campbell, Moores, Pritchard and various others all present this differing argument that doctors first identifying dyslexia and the children they worked with are best seen as independent agents um, they, they could adopt to literacy's dominance. And this is not just a product of their own education, but also the economic context and, of course, you know, the society they lived in. Their, their work would often categorise dyslexic children as different, you know, distinguishing them from normal learners. Not really the kind of language we like nowadays, but without such work, dyslexia may well have remained synonymous with what a number of them have used as feeble-mindedness. And these kinds of non-distinctions could well have left us stalling over these later insights that we've now had, which have massively benefited both dyslexic and non-dyslexic learners and workers and everyone else. Over the decades, the dyslexic community in Britain, and I'm going to have to focus mostly on Britain because it's the place I know better, uh, made up mostly of parents of teachers, 
even doctors and researchers, built up support for dyslexic kids and some adults. Mostly private kind of stuff like assessment centres, special schools, teaching programmes. And both my grandparents, and indeed the Warnock Report, which I'll talk about later, talk about how from the early 1960s onwards, there started to be a shift in people and organisations who started to care more about than just direct support. Because direct support can only help so many people because it's expensive, resource intensive, difficult. So we start seeing groups of parents, of adult dyslexics, of teachers and researchers starting to lobby for political recognition of dyslexia as well. And this happens at all levels. Parents were asking for help from local government for their kids. In the UK, most education was controlled by your local authority, by the local council. And early dyslexia groups are, are being created and they start talking to politicians, to officials, to journalists. Early pleas to the Ministry of Education by the World Blind Centre in the 1960s started to grow into lobbying by the British Dyslexia Association, which was formed in 1972 with the expressed purpose of being a campaigning group for dyslexia. We also see other organisations like the Dyslexia Institute, who are multinational. And they all targeted these education authorities in the main because, well, that's where dyslexic kids needed the most assistance. Again, we see this as being very much about a childhood thing rather than supporting adults. That does come along later, but it's a thing we keep seeing repeated today. Hello, Editor Simon here. One of the things which I've been told I should have included in this because I made notes on it and then decided to eject them is that there probably was a certain level of knowledge in the political classes about dyslexia from an earlier point. A school in Somerset by the name of Millfield, which is an independent, became the first school in Britain that actually started to address dyslexia specifically in 1942. And apparently their very first pupil who was actually diagnosed as dyslexic was the son of the Deputy Prime Minister of the time, Clement Attlee. Um, his son Martin was at that school. And so chances are there were at least some politicians who were aware of dyslexia and the impact it could have. Anyway, back to the podcast. As with many movements, this advocacy highlights the importance of individuals in the dyslexia story. The community itself, if you will, being represented by key spokespeople and the political establishment that they were aiming to, to sway. As John Samuel put in his 2007 paper, Public Advocacy and People-Centred Advocacy Mobilising for Social Change. People-Centred Advocacy seeks to challenge and change unjust power relations at all levels. People are the alpha and omega. Though focused on public policies, the larger purpose of people-centred advocacy is social transformation, such that all people realise their human rights, including civil, political, economic and social rights. How open particular officials were to these campaigns and their arguments about dyslexia as a concept, and indeed the campaigners' arguments, is kind of crucial to the final achievement of recognition. The Warnock Report, Campbell, Kirby, all make clear that in Britain, some policymakers really disliked dyslexia, seeing it in fact as a middle-class excuse for poor grades that they didn't want to waste limited resources on. And as much as I hate it, we still see this from some quarters today, with well-known rent-a-mouth teachers such as Catherine Burblesing saying things like, I would argue they just haven't been taught to read properly and they haven't gone back to basics. 
Moving swiftly on before I start ranting. Anyway, this advocacy and campaigning group history does differ from other accounts I've read of learning difficulties that stress the more social construction. These often come from ideas where medical, educational, legal authorities mainly create supportive conditions for learning difficulties or differences. So for dyslexia, Tom Campbell has argued that certain governmental logic drove recognition. Back to that earlier point on needing economically productive workers in more capitalist states. Yes, Similar ideas pop up for other cognitive differences, such as autism and ADHD, where the medical model and social demands are often seen as producing the learning disabled person. Obviously, social and political shifts like literacy becoming ever more key to you know school and work success shaped an environment where dyslexia could be recognised. But these changes are pretty broad. For instance, Campbell said dyslexia's recognition proceeded as our economically developed linguistic capacity became increasingly articulated into the accumulation of capital. Now, for me, this seems to argue and imply that dyslexia is a technology of power, uh, something which Kirby and Snowling points out serves to carve a population from the multitude. It, it creates a distinct and separate population of dyslexics. However, I'm not sure it's as simple as that, because enacting recognition wasn't straightforward in Britain. Governments ignored dyslexia, and some psychologists and teachers disputed its very existence. The British Dyslexic Association uh, argued that it was dyslexics themselves, and advocates, not state actors or generalised bureaucracies, who could be found pushing that dyslexia paradigm. So we can't just theorised that dyslexia emerged as a result of authorities exerting power to classify people, something they love doing normally, but rather that recognition emerged, as many social changes do, through complex back and forth between campaigners and politicians and groups and people and everything. There's also some hint in a lot of the literature that campaigns for cognitive differences and awareness of have been problematically differentiated, kind of bringing certain people away from what they call a perceived norm, which is something Marianne and I have spoken about previously and will no doubt come up again soon. Indeed, some accounts argue this reinforces the whole superiority of normal, and I may have to do an entire episode on this very soon. But the history of achieving recognition in Britain doesn't support the view that these efforts have disadvantaged dyslexics overall. In fact, it might well be the opposite. The campaign here wasn't about cementing non-dyslexics as normal. It was about helping a disadvantaged group whose troubles came from being recognised incorrectly, or not at all. A Description somebody sent me once was that it's like saying a zebra is not a broken horse, but simply a different kind of four-legged creature. They have a lot in common, but they also have their own needs. Now, I wanted to talk about this in a little bit more detail. So I gathered my friends and co-hosts, Sam and Joey, into our virtual coffee shop, and I asked them what they thought on this as well. What do we think of dyslexia as a label? You know, is it helpful is it something that i think it's ironic that it's quite difficult to spell <laughs> mm. but i mean joey you're you're dyslexic do you think the it's useful as a as a label is it something that you associate with does it form part of who you are think about it 
very often. If it comes up, people, or, you know, I'll mention it like the other, like I, I wrote a sign at work the day on a shortboard um, for the Christmas quiz and I missed the R. But it did take a week for anyone to notice that I missed the R. So I put the R in, it's fine. Um, <laughs> and I just said, you should never let the dyslexic person write the sign. <laughs> well, yeah, no, true. But I don't, it, like, it's not something I think about too much, so much anymore because it's not. Like when I was at school, it came up obviously a lot more, especially after I was diagnosed. And it's useful in that situation. And any time I go into training for a new skill or discipline, it's useful if it's necessary for exams and things. But for the most part, I just have to every so often remind people that sometimes my text messages will be upside down and inside out. And that's just what's going to happen. But for the most part, as an adult, it's not too much of an issue for me, but because dyslexia is, again, on a sliding scale of how much mm. it affects you, for some people, it is extremely laborious to read. It's never been terribly difficult for me to read. It's not hit me that badly. Like Words do jump around, and I struggle with my Bs and my Ds, and mm. my, spelling, my spelling is not as good as I want it to be. But I worked on that. I spent a huge amount of time outside of school in my spare time having extra lessons and things. I used to have someone that came to the house and I'd spend an hour every Tuesday doing work. I would give up all of my lunch and break times um, on certain days of the week to do extra lessons. So it's difficult for me to say how badly it affects me. Like there was a lot of work that went into it. And now I'm in a position where it's not it's not debilitating. And there's a lot of positives, I think, that come from dyslexia. But also those positives came at a, an enormous amount of groundwork because yeah. I did struggle up until I did that groundwork. Like there was this teacher that called me stupid, which I was not. It no, just, obviously not. I could not struggle. I, I, I could not <laughs> struggle. I could not. I couldn't do the work because I physically couldn't process the information fast enough to understand it at the time. But you know, several years of, of, of hard work pushed it into a different a different place. So dyslexia is very useful as a term when I was younger. But as as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a shorthand for describing some of the things you might struggle with. Yeah. I like I have I have no issue with it as a term. Like I know I like when when we talk about people with Asperger's, some people still very much cling to that as their identifier and some people find it almost offensive because obviously it goes back towards Nazi Germany and then everything linked towards that. So the in that term, dyslexia has no issue for me as 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 a title or a term. Mm. It it describes the issues that I have, but I also appreciate that I it it doesn't it doesn't impact my life mm. in the way that I seen it impact other people's lives. But at the same time, I was also very fortunate that I went to a very, very good school yeah. where I was given the resources to develop the coping mechanisms and strategies to deal with it. And I know people who are slightly older than me who went to very poor and performing schools who it essentially was, uh, I can't do this, I'm dyslexic. Like it was a barrier that could not be overcome and they'd never got the strategies to deal with it. So I, I get the the disparity between my dyslexia and other people's dyslexia. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Sam, what, what do you think? Do, is, is it useful having a label to act as a shortcut, as a, I suppose, almost a, a way of encompassing a whole range of behaviours to make it easier to explain who you are? Yes. Yeah. 
In, 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 in a word? Yeah. I mean, otherwise you'd have to go in into like long, drawn out explanations. And I think people then might not. I think they're less likely to sort of say, believe you. Whereas if you've got a term for something, you know, it's defined, it's understood. I mean, how, how would we talk about, say, say dyslexia didn't have a word for, we didn't have a word for dyslexia, mm-hmm. yet the condition was still recognized. That that scenario, a, for, for a start, is just quite like mind-boggling. Like it, it's difficult to sort of understand that scenario. But hypothetically, you'd have to go into the explanation of exactly what it was quite in depth every time you know i've got that thing that it's just it's ridiculous and like joey said i don't think i mean maybe you're gonna throw some research out now that uh will suggest otherwise but i can't see how like it's associated with any negative to it like the word other than Mm -hmm. as i mentioned earlier it's sort of i do find it quite ironic that um it's quite difficult to spell it is it is an astoundingly difficult word to spell for someone with dyslexia. Um, I don't have dyslexia. And I find it difficult to spell, although I am an awful speller. And speaker. A speaker. And speaker. And speaker. I know. I'd the label has been crucial for directing policymakers' attention and funding towards dyslexia in state schools. Campaigners wanted better integration, not further differentiation for dyslexic learners. In fact, and jumping ahead a bit and going back to other things we've talked about, until the Education Act of 1996, many local authorities split up students with additional educational needs from their peers and sent them to special schools. And indeed, as we discussed in the last episode, the Rose Review in 2009 is probably the best and most up-to-date discussion of and definitions around dyslexia in education. Anyway, back to awareness, because that's the thing that's kind of interesting me today. Dyslexia starts appearing in the media, and that probably helps more than any single change to bring it into the wider public consciousness. In 1972, one of the first UK TV programmes to tackle dyslexia, the documentary series Man Alive, ran a two-parter episode called Could Do Better. The BBC episode description runs thus. Can you read this? Could you write it? Robert Payne is a bright 16-year-old, normal in every way, except that he can barely read and write. He's just one of the bright, likeable children in tonight's Man Alive. He suffers from what some experts call dyslexia. Dyslexic children find it very difficult to learn what comes so naturally to most of us. They are not necessarily dull. Indeed, many are more intelligent than average, but they often spend their school lives in misery and frustration, thought of as stupid. Is enough being done for them? Why do some experts argue that dyslexia is nothing but a label used to excuse backward children. In the first two programmes, Jim Douglas Henry and a Man Alive film team look at those who are frequently written off with could do better. When they introduced Robert Payne, Kirby reports that they described him as normal, except he can barely read and write. He suffers from what some experts call dyslexia. Dyslexic children find it very difficult to learn what comes naturally to most of us. I'm not overly fond of this continued Victorian attitude, but it did start a conversation. So, yeah. Happily, into the 1980s, as political tension grew substantially, dyslexia does start to lose its mystique, let's say. 
My mum tells me that it was increasingly accepted as an authentic learning difficulty, one of the reasons why she had no issues in getting me assessed in the 1990s. Back to the media, however. And the earliest common depictions of dyslexia as an authentic condition start appearing in several American TV movies, sometimes more for lazy plotting reasons than for genuinely wanting to show real people, but this isn't a film criticism podcast yet, so I turned to vlogger Patrick Willems for, for, for some help on this. And typically in one of these films, a character is diagnosed with dyslexia as an adult, with the story showing them getting initial help from a kind friend or teacher. I did a very simple Google of dyslexia in media, and I came across two which I watched and kind of enjoyed, actually, as much as that may harm me in the future. The romance film, The Princess and the Cabbie. Fundamentally, a taxi driver helps someone who gets lost in Manhattan. Um, she has navigational troubles because, effectively, what we now realise is probably dyslexia. There was a drama, Backwards, The Riddle of Dyslexia, in 1984, and Love, Mary, a year later, where effectively you have a teacher and a social worker, both of them helping out somebody with dyslexia. Now, there is a real argument that dyslexia grabs the audience interest through its exoticism and the fact that it's shown as a real difficulty. And But the nice thing here is it's shown as a real difficulty with evidence and it shows that people are willing to support and help. So we've moved on from the imbecile type approach to the someone has a genuine need. And these sorts of portrayals of dyslexia as a functional limitation, they're relatively common in sort of the Western pop culture that I was able to access well into the 90s. I mean, I remember some of the TV and films I'd watch when my parents weren't paying attention. But another view also started to emerge then, one which some writers suggest may have been in reaction. Dyslexia as a gift or a superpower. And I'm not going to start ranting about this this time. That's an entire other episode. Um, in 1994, Ron Davis published The Gift of Dyslexia, which I have to say, it's actually one of the first books I've found that links the concept of dyslexia with that of being gifted. The followed then a kind of Rain Man phenomenon named for the 1988 film about autism uh, that made people fascinated with possible upsides of different thinking. It is a film we are going to review one day. There is no real solid science that can be presented to back these claims for dyslexia. Uh, books, TV, films from the early 2000s increasingly ran with this whole gifted dyslexic idea, sometimes trying to boost self-esteem for dyslexic learners. Great, thank you. And also that kind of aligns with a broader advocacy for acceptance. And although I do note a lot of creative powerhouses and excellent people have dyslexia, so I'm probably wrong on everything I've just said then, but I'm saying it, so, you know. Um, one of the biggest pop culture examples, which Joey and Sam pointed out to me over a year ago, and I only recently realised was in a lot of this documentation as well, are the Percy Jackson books. They came out in the mid-2000s, so sort of midway through Pottermania. Uh, it turns out I'd actually bought a whole bunch of them for my brother as a 10th birthday present. The hero, Percy, uh, is a modern New York teenager um, who somehow discovers that he's the son of the Greek god Poseidon and thus has divine powers. He, he also has dyslexia and ADHD, and they say this quite clearly, and, and this makes school quite difficult for him. But they help him in his more mythical adventures. 
it, the series does that whole Potterverse thing of muddling fantasy and reality in a way that is actually very common for the, the entire period, and even up until sort of today. Again, not a film criticism podcast. Get off your horse, Simon. In in the first Percy Jackson book, and indeed in the later film, Percy's friend explains. See, man, this place right here is the place where you learn to harness your powers. You're trained to become leaders, warriors, and heroes. I think you're the wrong guy, all right? I'm not a hero. I'm a loser. I have dyslexia, ADHD. And those are your greatest gifts. When you try to read the words float off the page, right? That's because your brain's hardwired for ancient Greek, not English. Like, at the museum, I can read. Yeah. And your ADHD? You're impulsive, Percy. You can't be still! Those are your natural battle reflexes, man. They kept you alive in your fight. The books were, yeah, pretty successful. They're quite well written, not bad little read. If you're looking for something for a teenager in your life, I'm more of a Discworld person myself, and we're definitely going to have to do the philosophy of Discworld one day, because that would be lovely. But I can see the attraction of these books. Anyway, uh, I, I, I say anyway a lot, don't I? Sorry. I should note that claims of dyslexic strengths sometimes from advocates as well as authors and filmmakers, has been known to draw criticism from researchers, from campaigners, from parents, for creating unrealistic expectations. Certainly, I know there have been times I've questioned myself, because surely the dyslexia means I ought to be able to do some things better, and people tell me it's a superpower and I can't do the thing. And on that note, I think it's probably a good idea for us to return once more to the coffee shop to see what the others think on this. So some people talk about dyslexia as being a superpower or a, a strength, but is it a superpower? So I would say in every way, shape and form, no. I, would, I, I think it, in, in the way that when someone says someone is talented, and it doesn't matter whether it's with a musical instrument or painting or woodwork or whatever it is, I don't think they appreciate how much work has gone into that talent. It's not talent, it's an obsession that has developed into being very, very good at something. Mm. And I think with dyslexia, you are so hindered with learning in a conventional sense that you develop other ways of learning and seeing the world from other people. Because everyone else learns in a, in a, they can read a book and mm -hmm. it's not an issue. Whether they enjoy it or not is very different, but they're not hindered at actually reading the book. And they can write stuff down on a piece of paper and they can copy it out hundreds and hundreds of times, learn it verbatim, fine. The way in which you learn and see the world as a child is very much, I read this in a book and I've wrote it out 10 times and now I understand it. Or at mm. least I, I, I know it parrot fashion, at least that I can say <laughs> it. Whether you understand it or not is not important, but that's a different problem with the, the schooling in this country. Yes. Um, I, it is not a superpower because I feel like when people think of superpowers, they think of something that, oh, suddenly acid was spilt on this boy and suddenly he could fly. No, no, no. Acid was spilt on the boy and then he spent years and years and years and years and years in rehab and then suddenly developed the ability to fly after years and years of really trying and mm. then developed something that someone else didn't have. And I think in that sense, dyslexia is a superpower if you spent huge amounts of time practicing and training and 
working out how to develop coping needs. And I think that's the same with any learning difficulty, any neurodivergence. It gives you a perspective that atypical people don't have. Because uh, so with, with, with dyslexia, a lot of people have dyslexia do display levels of uh, creativity, of spatial awareness, of mm-hmm. that seeing the bigger picture thing or uh, problem solving or even recognising complex patterns. But do you think that by turning these differences into a superpower, we do more harm than good? The, the idea that if they can't do something, they don't have the superpower, so therefore they must be useless. No, well, no, because I, uh, again, that plays into the idea that because you have this thing, you must have, you must have this other other power. But it's the same way in which when people talk, when blind people talk about their their spatial awareness and their hearing and the things that bother them, it's because that that thing is much more aware in their head. It's not that it's better; it's that they've spent more time using it because they don't have the option of doing the other thing. And it's the same with autistic people in the way in which they process sensory input they they don't have the other input or the other input doesn't make sense to them so they don't use it so they use the other one so the other bit of their brain is more more developed i suppose that that they're they're more used to using it at least and it's the same way with dyslexia you are you are constantly looking for other ways in which to analyze information because the way in which everyone else does it which is look at it read it and go ah i understand it it doesn't necessarily work or it's it works but it's harder for you Mm. because you you can't absorb it in the same way because you have to read it and reread it and reread it and then double check that that word says what you thought it said because it jumped around the page five times and because of that you develop other skills which then are useful and sometimes people will go well how did you break that down like that or how could you how could you look at this engine and go well clearly this part is here 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 and it all fits together like this because you've used your spatial awareness and at that point it is a superpower because it wasn't useful for the other person because they didn't have it and therefore they look at you and go oh that's a superpower but no one is going well it took him 20 minutes to read that for a poor a4 piece of paper <laughs> look at his superpower so at times it's very useful and other times it's massively hindering but it's the same i would assume it's the same for typical people that when they look at someone who is able to process information differently to them, they go, oh, they've got a superpower that I don't have, and it's brilliant. Wow. I feel special. Um, well, I wonder, like, it, it, to me, it sort of seems like it depends on, as a lot of things do, who and the context in which they are using said description. So, like Joey sort of explains, there could be some very positive spins on it, I guess, where it could... It could, it could be sort of used as a positive description, but it can also be sort of misleading, can't it? You know, to sort of say it's a superpower is misleading because it doesn't then highlight the disadvantages that come with it or the, you know, the, the obstacles you have to overcome with with that as well. So it's, yeah, I think I think misleading is the, definitely the overriding thing for me there. It strikes me as. But no, again, it's like, it's who who's using it who's using that description who's describing mm. dyslexia as a superpower you know if it's somebody with dyslexia going oh yeah this is my superpower i can i just look at things and know how they're sort of um to, to take it apart it could just be an exuberant way of them 
describing their own abilities, you know. And should we police that? No, of course not. A superpower. Um, a superpower to talk to fish on a desert planet would yeah, not be it? useful. It's still a superpower, but you have no way of using it. So yeah. I feel like people's abilities to use a superpower is entirely defined by in the ways in which it's useful. And if you've got a very analytical mind and you work in a very language-orientated world, pointless. Whereas, but if you've got a very analytical mind and you work in statistics, then you've got a huge advantage. So I think your ability to use your... I, I, and I don't think this is a necessarily an, an, an atypical mm. thing. I think it's just everyone has got skills that are good for... Well, skills that they are very good with and skills they enjoy using and therefore they use them more and therefore they're better at them. Yeah. And then don't necessarily exist in a world where they get to use them. At the end of the day, these things are just skills uh, one way or another. The things that some people are better at and some people are worse at. And are we giving the skill that that person has too much emphasis by calling it a superpower as opposed to just something they're very good at i think part of it comes from a place of pity and trying to put a positive spin on a disability Mm. because why do you think people do that from a place of pity that sort of charitable oh they're there kind of thing well i I don't think i don't think there's i don't think it's a, a negative point of pity i think i think it's a case of you are struggling with this and therefore i'm trying to make you feel better about it but that is sort of pity sort of it's not it's not negative they are they are genuinely seeing you with a with a problem they see that you are struggling it upsets you and therefore are trying to make you feel better about it which i think is where the term superpower sort of comes from i would hope anyway oh it's getting, um, getting very philosophical philosophical a lot of philosophical um, philosophical that's the word um I don't think I don't think the use of su- of calling it a superpower is necessarily terrible or bad. I just I do think that it needs to be understood that it's not a superpower you were born with because finding finding the way in which you can make a learning dis- a learning difficulty work for you requires an enormous amount of effort, help from other people, knowing about it necessarily at an earlier age, because it is much more difficult to cope with things when you are older because your brain is less malleable. So whereas at school, you can have you can not go to the religious education lessons and you can have an extra English lesson or extra whatever you need to help you with that. So getting it early is going to help. But I do think dyslexia as a superpower if you just just say superpower, I think mm. you think as of of Superman who developed his powers because that's how he was born, just happened to be under the correct sun and therefore was immortal and blah blah blah, rather than the people who develop their power by spending years training in the mountains, doing millions of press ups and whatever else they have to do. And it's very useful and it gives you an advantage to other people in specific situations. Therefore, it technically could be seen as a superpower. I'm also wondering whether it's sort of like, and whether subconscious or not, I'm going to go with a subconscious. I think it might be like a subconscious glossing over how much of sort of like um like a disabling society that we do live in as well mm-hmm. you know it's trying mm-hmm. to trying to spin something by 
glossing over it. So it would be interesting to know the origin because that might give you some clues. So so then do you think that by using the term uh, calling dyslexia a superpower, do you think by that we are allowing people to overlook and forget the daily challenges of dyslexia or as a way to minimise people's experience of it by saying well you have a superpower definitely i think i think we sh- it should these things should always be balanced with yeah all right you can do this is your superpower you can you know you're really good with numbers or wh- whatever it might be you know or you can deconstruct things um in your in your head like you can take the tv apart in your head sort of thing and you'd know how it's put together but also then say yeah but you're not good with writing a letter or you know it, you need to it's like a lot of things. You need to present both sides of the story, don't you? Mm. Yeah. The third major dyslexia portrayal in a popular sort of cultural world is absolutely going to be comedy. I mean, jokes are sometimes sympathetic to dyslexics. Eddie Izzard, very well-known dyslexic comedian, actor, hopefully one day mayor of London, uh, has openly talked about how dyslexia impacts their own work. There are multiple TV and movie examples, but it's also kind of a favourite of cartoons. You know, um, like the giftedness idea, joking references grow as dyslexia gains acceptance throughout the years, and especially into the early 2000s. Eddie Izzard even used it in their own stand-up comedy routines. One thing was huge before language, and that was Scrabble. Because <laughs> Scrabble, after language, it became about words. Before language, it was just put the letters down. There were no rules. Everyone was a winner. K, t, fung, guitar, bling, bang. 76. A sting, box, excranza, kanga. It's 105. It's a triple word. Scrabble was invented by Nazis to piss off kids with dyslexia. <laughs> this is true, they proved this now. The word dyslexia was invented by Nazis to piss off kids with dyslexia. <laughs> What's the point of coming up with a word like dyslexia to explain a word blindness spelling problem? They have a problem with the words. It is a difficult thing. We've called this problem Got 22, pick up. It has 17 silent letters in the face of a rat in it. Just call it bonk. They suffer from bonk. They have a word blindness. We call it bonk. Excuse me, miss, I got bonk. All right, all right, just choose something at the corner of the class. All right. I would have preferred that than sitting there and spelling colour with a K. I did a fantastic I spy. It's brilliant for I spy. I, I spy with a with this S for ceiling. Went on for hours. So my brother was throttling me. S ceiling. Ceiling's not with an S. Of course it is. Many programmes, however, dyslexia gets played as inferior to normal functioning. The laughs. You can hear how much this thrills me. Like, uh, characters dismissing dyslexia as not serious, or one which many of my friends have heard far too many times, it simply meant that you were stupid. Joey's often told the story of what happened in school, and I won't need to tell it again. In other sort of well-known cultural references, The Simpsons. Duffman describes dyslexia as... Dyslexia! Duffman! Secret shade! 
The implication in many of these media representations is that dyslexia is either an insignificant or a bogus difficulty. Sometimes dyslexia gets aligned with unrelated disabilities or used to explain something entirely different for an unexpected joke. I was watching lots of TV review films and things in the last year or so. There's a great YouTuber called uh, Jose who does these nice, cosy retrospectives of television programs. And they did one of Scrubs the other day. And they pointed out Ted, the hospital lawyer in the comedy, uses the wrong name for the head of the hospital. Stress-induced dyslexia, and you know that, Dr. Oslick. I got about three pages later and discovered Kirby and Snowling had also noticed this, so... Yeah, they did spot one which I hadn't known about, which was the Mindy Project, where drinking worsens the, the, the lead character's dyslexia, which, in, in fairness, is something I can absolutely relate to. In loads of shows, dyslexia randomly explains unrelated things. And that got me thinking. So after getting a fresh flat white, I went back to ask the others what they thought about this as well. So, yeah, no, I was just thinking like dyslexia in the media because I couldn't actually think of that many examples of it. And then I was like looking through and it almost felt like it had become sort of the acceptable face of disability, if you will, or at least cognitive disabilities. Uh, yeah, I have not seen it in the media where it hasn't been portrayed as someone struggling with reading words literally flying around a page like this like literally it jumps from left to right to right as if as if it was set on random where the word should be <laughs> which is not what dyslexia is like but it's always shown as as the furthest right word jumps to the left and everything just completely changes position and then they have a chat with a kind and friendly teacher or, or 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 teacher who then explains to them dyslexic they're dyslexic and they go oh this is the thing and then it's never brought up again mm -hmm. as if explaining that you have a learning difficulty was all you needed <laughs> and that is that is how i've always seen dyslexia in media because it, it pops up in soaps every so often i remember it be i'm sure i'm sure it's hollyoaks where mm. someone was dyslexic and then it was explained to them that they're dyslexic and then because it was like huge build-up of struggling with exams and and covering it up and all this crap of them like pretending it was okay and they couldn't read and then suddenly they suddenly some friend was like oh my god i think you're dyslexic and they're like, oh, oh, okay. And they <laughs> explain it to a teacher, and then suddenly it never comes up again. It's never a problem. And in Percy yeah. Jackson, he's dyslexic, but he's not. He's hardwired for Greek. So as soon as that's explained to him, it's never a problem again because actually his brain is just trying to read ancient Greek all the time because he's a demigod. So although it's thrown at him, he's not actually dyslexic, he's a demigod, mm. which is a very different kettle of fish that's that is a definite superpower yes the literal <laughs> literal superpowers the man has command over water and can heal people with water yeah i do not have that power listeners but so you've you've just explained there you know the fact that it sort of gets used as almost like a throwaway ah oh, it's just a thing for the hero to get over and then they're over it and it's done but mm. it, it it gets used occasionally in, in sort of other places sort of almost Comedically, do you, and do you think that sometimes is is one of the downsides of of it in in the media? Does it sometimes get used as just sort of a in my day 
we just used to say people were stupid kind of way or so i would i would hope the issue is you've got is that some some people who are dyslexic are also dumb <laughs> which is the difficulty and it is the same it is the same with any perceived difference and you can't do anything about that but pe- people are people and it doesn't matter doesn't matter what category you try to identify people by there are bad examples of that however dyslexia in itself does nothing towards your intelligence mm-hmm. at all and usually because of your issues with learning and the way in which you've coped with it, you have developed coping mechanisms that actually generally mean you do very well on an IQ test because a huge amount of an IQ test is spatial reasoning and other spatial things like reasoning that. and other things, which you become very good at if you have to focus on that side of your brain rather than the look at these letters. They all mean words and words mean things. What about you, Sam? Can you think of... Um examples of just disability in general in media no my only my only thing to contribute is i once thought i might have it uh because i i, well, I struggle with spelling a little bit but it's not the same as i don't think it's the same as what you have but i've never it's never been enough of an issue for me to actually go about getting myself tested and i think i mean it's, it is I a, think a lot of people will, yeah. i think a lot of people will identify with that as well yeah more than 10 so six Seven, seven, nearly 800 million people. The way and manner in which dyslexia is shown in pop culture connects to its broader history in a few ways. First, the increase in references since the 1980s, especially into the 1990s, reflects that dyslexia was starting to gain more educational and political recognition. It suggests pop culture references emerging following these policy steps and increased global awareness through writers and actors going to schools that started recognising and supporting kids with it. The great director Ken Loach talks about how the film industry often reflects the existing social structures and helps to push an overall political decision, creating a circular response. He's also a fantastic director. I highly recommend looking him up for anything. These writers and actors and and the new television programmes in turn helped to establish public awareness that kept this wheel turning and made dyslexia harder for politicians and decision makers to disregard. As many have noted elsewhere, there is a significant link between the creation of TV and film and political discourse. Back to Ken Loach again. Several of the books I have read, and indeed, I'm like I say, I've been watching a lot of TV and film criticism the last few months because it's become my new cosy obsession as an autist. It has become notable that dyslexia became the acceptable face of neurodiversity for learning difficulties. And from the early 2000s onwards, it became shorthand to explain unrelated difficulties, arguably indicating that such common knowledge by then served as a benchmark for discussing all sorts of cognitive differences and putting them under a single umbrella term. Kirby and Snowling point out that there is a downside to this proliferation of understandings too, and use Warwickshire Council's 2018 foibles. Um, It's a council well known to at least one of my co-hosts. Uh, uh, where they decided that there are now too many dyslexias 
and that the term has lost coherence compared to when it was science alone that ascribed definitions and before these social movements and actually dyslexic people started messing everything up. I know it's dreadful, isn't it? When the people who actually have the condition decide on how to define it rather than and off of my horse. I do have some sympathy for the view that cultural references, TV, film, general public campaigns have radically expanded the dyslexia awareness and oversimplified it in that process. It's an argument that can be applied to queer rights as well. For most people, until probably the 90s, knowledge of dyslexia was pretty limited. Most wouldn't really have any real experience of it unless they had it or maybe had an immediate relative with it. But today, there's a glut of information, possibly even too much to easily pass it all. And some of it can be a bit harmful. Bogus cures anyone? And this means that it can be seized upon by critics, including ill-informed county councils, to argue that if dyslexia means so many things, it means nothing at all. This is a challenge we often see in other campaigns, and I thought it would be useful to talk about the neurodiversity agenda. We will absolutely cover this in greater detail when we look at the politics of autism with our friend Danny sometime in the future. Jumping back to 1998, Judy Singer wrote about autism. Putting aside some of her more challenging modern views for the moment, I'm going to say here, trans rights are real and should be respected. In her paper, she said, the autism spectrum's key meaning is its call for a politics of neurological diversity or neurodiversity. She writes, the neurologically different is a new addition to familiar categories like class, gender and race, and will expand the social model of disabilities insights. Even our most basic assumptions that we all see, feel, touch, hear, smell and process information similarly, unless visibly disabled, are dissolving. This would, to my mind, apply similarly to dyslexia. And as Singer suggests, as the neurologically different voices grow louder, a more ecological societal view may emerge more relaxed about different being styles, letting each individual find their niche based on the mutual awareness rising from sociology, psychology and neurology. In other words, Singer argued differences like autism were less disabilities, more natural human variations that should be recognised as such. I would argue that dyslexia falls under the same umbrella. Neurodiversity as a concept has emerged as part of the wider social campaigning and inclusivity efforts since the mid-2000s, furthering overall marginalised groups' rights. As debates over labels show, and as we have discussed, this symbolic umbrella term has been quite fiercely contested, especially online. Something that seems obvious to me is that a key goal of late 20th century learning disability advocates was getting public and political recognition for specific labels to get funding and support. Neurodiversity adds a, a nuance to this by seeking recognition of alternative thinkers, not as a separate group, but on a spectrum of human abilities. Bring it round to dyslexia for a moment. In the Rose Review in 2009, which we say effectively is the current description of dyslexia, they talk about the best practice in identifying and teaching children with dyslexia. And part of the problem with the definition that is given is that 
whilst the difficulties the review describes are reasonably well accepted ac across the, the community, their differentiation from other reading problems, and indeed they go back to that query around the meaning of the word dyslexia. I think that feeds very much into something we've discussed on this podcast before, that even in the last 10 to 15 years, neurodiversity has become the prominent term for efforts in the social, the political, educational, legal realms, arguing for acceptance and embracing that method and acceptance of multiple thinking styles, rather than framing certain ones as better or more desirable. This is worrying for some people with entrenched positions or views, because it does tend to destabilise that idea, that myth of normal or abnormal. Most discussions on neurodiversity have been in autism, given Singer's initial focus there, and the growing community is now debating these concepts. But neurodiversity has also been taken up by other groups with different or supporting thinking styles other than the norm, including the dyslexia community, and rightly so, in my view. In, in the US, it has started to appear in the International Dyslexia Association publications and articles. In Britain, the British Dyslexia Association has started using it too, saying... Helps promote that neurological differences should be recognised and respected like any human variation. It counters negative associations and makes it easier for all neurotypes to contribute as they are, rather than trying to appear more typical. For the British Dyslexia Association, it's also a helpful way to modulate that educational approach. All classrooms are neurodiverse, with different learners. Teaching must meet all learners' needs, using suitable methods to support weakness while developing strengths and abilities. This means that dyslexia campaigners have used the neurodiversity paradigm to expand understandings of dyslexia and increase both awareness and acceptance of the condition as well as opening the door to discussions of other forms of neurodiversity. So as I polished off my cake here at Atypical Cafe, I turned to ask my co-hosts what they thought of this as well. Does dyslexia belong as part of the wider neurodiversity umbrella? Bearing in mind that, as you said, it's like one in ten people, or should it be its own thing? The issue you've got here is like all things in terms of so much of life is on a spectrum. It's very difficult to quantify anything because people like to lock things down into small units they can understand. And in terms of neurodivergence, is it a useful term? Yes, because it, I think people then understand that not everyone thinks in the same way that they do. But if I tell you that I'm neurodivergent, you haven't got a shitting clue in which, in which way to adapt mm. your behaviour to facilitate or help me. <clears throat> because it's not descriptive. It is such a broad term. And then you can say, OK, well, I'm autistic. But then again, that in itself is an enormous umbrella term. And therefore, you don't know how to adapt. So it, it, it's, it's useful in the sense that I think if you explained that people should then ask further questions in a genuine and pleasant way of how do I how do I how do I help you? How do I assist? How do I interact? So on and so forth. Then, yes, it's useful to be under that umbrella. 
But in of itself as a descriptor, it's entirely unhelpful because it's it gives you the broader the term is, the less helpful mm. it is. Apart from then asking if if you've got someone curious enough or switched on enough to then ask the next set of questions because that ultimately if I if someone asks me in a job interview what you know is there anything we need to know about or anything like that or any how can we help you best fit in and I just say I'm neuro I'm I'm not I'm neurotypical. What how how what what do they do with that? It's not helpful. Mm. So so bringing it in down to I'm dyslexic is more useful because that is that that pushes it into a into a smaller category of how they can assist or think about interacting with me and that's the same with any 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 disability whether it's it's neurological or physical i think the more specific it is as long as you're not using latin terms and you're just saying that you have and someone goes what what does that actually mean Mm, yeah okay i I have that i teach fitness classes and i had someone come up to me and explain a very specific type of um ms literally this morning and i had to then go back and was like let's let's jump back how is it going to affect you in this with with these sets of exercises because ultimately that you can go too far into specifics and it's not helpful and you can go too far into being very general Mm -hmm. so is it useful as if people are taught to ask the next set of questions sure Outside of that, no, but I don't think anything. It's like saying to someone, I'm disabled. How? Okay, yeah, yeah. How, how are you disabled? How, how, in which way can we alter things so that you don't feel disabled is the next question. And it's the same with, with, with being atypical in your uh, divergence. So we are not in that world. We don't live in a world where people ask that next question. Because people don't like to make extra effort because people are ultimately going for the simplest and easiest option. It's rare that you find the people that want to go for more as I slump in my chair. Um, so you don't you don't think it's it, you don't think it should be seen even as part of of the wider neurodiversity it should be seen as its I mean, own it, thing. It, I mean, it 100 percent is part of neurodivergence because you are thinking and seeing the world differently with the same input like you are looking at the same thing as someone else and you are interpreting it and perceiving it differently therefore you are neurodivergent from that person so it it is a neurodivergence i just i it and therefore i think it is useful that it is part of that category i just don't think we live in a world where people then take the extra step to then ask dyslexia is in that category of neurodivergence because it is a neurodivergence is it useful yes should it be more useful because people care more about the people they interact with yes is it negative Mm. no but again it's neg- it, the only reason it would be negative is because people don't make effort and you could make that argument about everything. I feel like I've covered a lot and barely even tickled the iceberg in this episode. I'm surrounded by books, printed articles, pages of handwritten notes and I'm, I've done most of this recording after sequence so the editing is going to be delightful. I'm sure we have much more we can say in the future but 
before I sign off, I wanted just to round out this last bit we've been talking about. Throughout my research for this episode, I kept thinking that it was interesting how much of the neurodiversity agenda, like the dyslexia debate before it, has been prefigured in this dyslexic history. As ideas from Victorian researchers show, for well over a century, some have recognised dyslexia as a spectrum of abilities and disabilities with varying individual expressions. Singer's early neurodiversity aim of a more relaxed society that allows individuals to find their niche also echoes progressive 20th century government and educational approaches, such as the 1967 Children and Primary Schools Report, no, not often by most people as the Plowden Report, here in Britain. Now, my friend Fergus, who's been a teacher for over 40 years, did explain that Lady Plowden really didn't like the term dyslexia. Um, and indeed, several of the other authors I've used note that the committee's report, and indeed the child-centred approach to learning difficulties, does actually resemble Singer's later position. When we compare Plowden's view of the, um, the child at the heart to the ecological society quote within Singer's work, their language is really very similar, and I could find a lot of the same direction echoed across the decades. In later work done by any number of autistic authors, they seem to follow the same process and thinking. And likewise, even, the, the, the notion of a continuum of differences um, in the 1978 Warnock Committee report on special educational needs echoes the same later neurodiversity aims. As Kirby points out, the Warnock report predicted the limitations of such terms that they'd... Um, that they'd conflate differences affecting individuals differently. This, again, predicted what we now see as a very common neurodiversity criticism, that it problematically lumps cognitive differences together, ignoring some that are more challenging. Similar critiques have been made of its underlying social model of disability, which is absolutely something we're going to explore in much greater detail one day. So, where does this leave dyslexia and neurodiversity? Dyslexia advocates have long pushed for equal opportunities for dyslexics, but via these more established and older routines, and by keeping with, again, that established dyslexia label, rather than adopting the broader neurodiversity one. And research does suggest that the label is mostly favoured across the community. For me, as someone with dyslexia, autism and ADHD, it seems obvious that dyslexia is important and that it should sit in neurodiversity. But it remains to be seen whether neurodiversity and framing dyslexia as a difference, not a disability, can address the range of literacy troubles that dyslexic people have in a text-centric society. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, goodbye. I thought that was fascinating. What about you? Absolutely brilliant. I can't, can't believe this is very dangerous. You could say anything now. You could have verbal diarrhea for 20 minutes and you're getting me to agree on it. How dare you? I mean, I did verbal diarrhea for insert time here. And yeah, it was fine. <laughs> please, 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 <laughs> robot voice to the time. 15 minutes. And the dish ran away with the spoon.